0: Join me as I talk with people who express their creativity in ways that can inspire the rest of us to recognize our own creativity. And if you enjoy these conversations, please like, subscribe, and share them. Hello and welcome to Creativity Conversations. This is episode 54, and today I have Matt Goodemote with me. Hello, Matt. Hello, Nina all the way from denmark
1: yes greetings from denmark (laughs) yes
0: (laughs) so uh if you've been on these calls before which some of you probably have we spend a lot of time talking about the many aspects of creativity and how they appear in different form in different professions for different people so we got to talk to matt today about his work in physical therapy and i'm going to start out by reading his bio and then we'll see what happens after that (laughs) so matt goodemote is the founder of goodemote physical therapy a physical therapy clinic in saratoga springs new york and his therapy clinic is a three-time best of saratoga for physical therapy winner the last three years and more recently matt founded PhysioFit physical therapy an internet-based physical therapy practice so i want to talk to you about how you do that Mm -hmm. And in addition, Matt has a diploma from the McKenzie Spine Institute International and received his certification in Applied Functional Sciences. Matt is one of 350 clinicians worldwide who has a diploma. Matt is also part of a running cohort consisting of physical therapists and chiropractors that reviews the latest research and shares the most effective and progressive treatments used with runners of all kinds. And Matt writes for local newspapers, including the Leader Herald and Saratoga Today, and has been featured in Fitness Magazine, Redbook, and Pilates Today for articles on treating back and net pain. Matt's goal is to offer simple solutions for musculoskeletal conditions and dispels myths about interventions that are ineffective or counterproductive. So we should talk about that too. And Matt's also a regular guest on WAMC's Vox Pop, where he takes callers' questions and provides clarification and guidance for their physical therapy related conditions. Yes. That's very impressive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so first of all, I always I
1: feel weird about bios I don't know how to really write them and how to uh, yeah
0: well they they're just skimming the surface you know
1: just, <laughs> Sure. just
0: a jumping <laughs> off point yeah so first of all I'm really curious about what is an internet-based physical therapy program how do you do that
1: well first of all it's a work in progress so a few years ago we started a cash-based practice which Uh, In Denmark, a physical therapist is a physiotherapist, and then the pandemic hit. And so during the pandemic, a lot of physical therapists kind of scrambled to still figure out how to see patients. Um, And one of the ways was through Zoom meetings and things like that. So we did a lot of virtual uh, visits. And I had also just because of the nature of what I've done over the last 25 years, I've written articles for 25 years. And I've been receiving emails from around the country. And I had people from my furthest away was South Africa, which was really cool. And I emailed back and forth just giving some recommendations. And it was from a little newspaper in New York that she got the article. And uh, so I have been doing interventions that way for at least, I would say, probably 20 years, not 25 years, um, mainly through email, but now as technologies improve through Zoom calls. And so during the pandemic, um, there's a couple things one is realizing that i'm 50 years old and my physical body isn't tolerating the hands-on work that i've done in the past and i've really struggled over the last couple years with that so having an internet-based practice was really easy during the pandemic because i didn't have to use my hands and i could still uh, see people move and give them recommendations and there were lots of people who loved it because they didn't have to leave their home and then I started to get invited onto NPR to do that radio show. And I started to realize the um, uh, same idea that people were calling in and they just kind of wanted to have uh, somebody they could ask a few questions to to clarify things or get a little bit of guidance. And so that started to percolate that oh, there's, there exists a way to do this on a, a larger scale, uh, definitely for the local audience, but then on a bigger scale. And so while over here in Denmark, I've reached out to a couple uh, running groups. Uh, through facebook and just started to send them some content about injury prevention and things like that and my big long-term goal is to have something where people can uh, use virtual means to get in touch with me to ask questions and i'll provide i think workshops and opportunities to to teach about things but the the one i haven't figured out quite yet how to do um, because I'm not great with technology but I do know there is a way the the Vox pop, the call in is one of the most favorite things I love to do and so I figure if there's a way to get a call-in uh, show going somehow that can people can start to recognize and call in that's a lot of fun for me And so I would like to do that. And then the other thing I love to do is to get in front of groups and talk and I go to senior centers for example or running groups and just do a workshop, a 20 minute talk, and then uh, some demonstration of exercise. So I figure that would go really well on the, uh, virtually, so we'll see.
0: It's perfect. So here's what my first question, here's the second question that my first question is leading (laughs) to. (laughs) Talk a little bit about the McKenzie method and then talk, because from what I understand, it's based on observation of the pacem- uh, patient and education. and education. So it's based on observation and how that transfers over to online and Zoom.
1: Well, first of all, that McKenzie method definitely changed my life. That's also where I met my wife. So she's a McKenzie therapist as, as well. And uh, so Robin McKenzie was a physical therapist in New Zealand, and he had a patient with sciatica. And back in the 1950s, uh, they thought bending backwards was bad for you. So Mr. Smith came in with sciatica, and McKenzie asked him to lay down on the treatment table where he could put heat on his back. But the treatment table had been elevated because the previous patient had an ankle sprain, so they elevated the table for uh, the ankle. And so when Mr. Smith went in and laid down, he laid down and his back was arched backwards, which was supposed to be bad for you. So uh, the genius of McKenzie for me was that, A, it worked. It helped uh, Mr. Smith pain so his sciatica went away just from laying on the table for a few minutes with his back arched so that's number one and then number two is McKenzie started to try it with everybody <laughs> so uh it doesn't work for everybody but through that observation and through him practicing and testing some things out he figured out uh, different patterns that develop. and based on a patient's uh, clinical presentation what they what they subjectively tell you then you can start to see those patterns emerge and then guide them to an exercise. So for me, the, my first stint on the radio was back, um, when I was still, I had a practice in Gloversville. I did a little radio show on a local AM station called Back Talk. So people would call in and ask questions about back pain and on the radio, I didn't see anything. So I had to learn how to listen differently. Mm-hmm. And so through listening and asking questions, I got better at my questions. So the questions were a little bit more direct than I would do in the clinic. So it it elicited a yes or no kind of answer or something more concrete. And then through that, I started to learn how to guide people verbally. And that also was a whole practice because if you say too much, it confuses people. If you don't say enough, they don't know what you're talking about. So, um, But through years of practice, that the, the combination of those two things really set me up for something like doing it online because now I actually can see somebody which helps a ton Uh, just noticing a posture or seeing how they move to clarify oh bring your hips down that way or move that way but probably the first 10 years of my career I didn't actually use my hands very much I did it all through exercise and education and so with the pandemic it was just a reminder of how to do that and then I get to see people move and then ask a few questions and it kind of all just coalesced in together as a You figure out, oh, this is why all those weird things happened to me over the last 20 years. So we'll see. Set you up for the opportunity. So,
0: you know, because we talk about creativity in this program and we expand the definition beyond just holding a paintbrush or writing or, or acting or something that someone normally would associate with creativity. How do you see what you're doing as having uh, creative components. I mean, kind of obvious to me, but I'd love to hear your side of it. Yeah. Especially with that, that process of observation and it's almost like you're a detective.
1: Yes. Uh, So uh, you definitely have to be creative when you're on, on the spot. So when someone's in there, um, I I actually always called it the art of therapy. So there's the science, which is just a straightforward book. And then, it's learning to read people, and it is observational, but it's also when you're asking a question and you've you know heard a lot of responses, so you know what brings you in today and where exactly are your symptoms located? those kind of things really zero in the possibilities of the diagnosis, and then it's just teasing out uh, for this individual what's really going on. And so through that, the the creative part is trying to figure out the right way to ask a question. And some people need a very, direct, almost borderline confrontational, and other people need a very soft, relaxed, and some people don't want you to talk at all. They just want to talk the majority of the time. And so it's it's really like a, a yeah, observation for sure, and reading the person, what mood they're in. And I always, uh, so my McKenzie training, and in particular, my teacher, uh, he talked about the patient has all the answers. It's not the therapist that has the answers, but the patient. Our job is to ask the questions to get to the conclusion and he also would say that you come to a conclusion when you're tired of asking questions so uh what i would often do is i i'm always observing for sure but the questions that i ask they they sometimes may seem uh not that significant to the person but there's a there's a whole message behind it for me and uh so something as minor as what effect did getting out of the chair have on you just now that seems innocuous but for me that tells me is it mechanical so when they're getting up and down from a movement you can identify if it's mechanical meaning there's a tissue that's being provoked from the movement versus chemical which is an inflammatory process or an inflection an infection which won't necessarily change from a movement and so something small like what effect does that have doesn't have any effect okay or yeah i could feel this or that then it it starts to clarify what is really going on with this individual? Is this a musculoskeletal issue? Is it more of a systemic issue? And also, is it a psychol- psychological issue? Um, yeah, because oftentimes, obviously, the, you can't separate the the, the form from the, the mind-body connection. Is I don't know how to separate the two, and there's That's, a lot of people.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, excuse me for interrupting. That was exactly okay. where I was starting to head to ask you about that mind-body yeah. connection and How do you see that showing up with people?
1: Um, Well, my wife was studying to be a psychologist when we first met, even though she was a physical therapist. And I certainly learned uh, a lot from her and how she would uh, talk about different ways people are uh, presenting. And so she steered me in the direction of different authors also to read and to learn about. Um, but the the mind-body connection, there's just an easy one that if you're dealing with a lot of stress, then it's going to manifest physically. And so there's people who are coming in and they're fearful and you can tell by their body language that they're just really scared. And so for me, then one of the first things that comes out of my mouth is you're gonna be fine. It's This is actually easy to fix. You just need the guidance to fix it. Um, so depending on what's going on for the the mental part, the the fear, the anxiety, uh, the anger, the frustration, all of those different things, and then of course just learning the person and what their personality needs the most. Um, I just had it right before I left for Denmark. I had a patient that I I spent you know a good ten minutes talking about um, why doing too much was not productive for her to get a good outcome. And a lot of people they they think if I do more that it's going to be better. And afterwards she said, "Thank you for reprimanding me that way." And it wasn't like, in my mind, a reprim- I wasn't reprimanding her, but um, it was very, she said it was very clear what I was trying to say. And I, I did it in such a nice way that she didn't uh, resist arguing with me. She just uh, uh, took, the, took the message uh, to heart. And uh, so it's, it's learning that. It's learning the right person at the right time. There's certain times where the, the practice is really busy and I'm completely focused on that one individual I don't really know what's going on around me. And the reason is because they need that at that moment. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and it's, it's a feel, Nina, I don't, I don't have great words to describe it, but you can just sense when this is what is going on and it's not physical, I can tell you that. Um, and I just try to tune into that more and more. And when I'm at my best, I, I do feel like that's one of the things that's different about the type of therapy that I've done through the years. I don't consider myself a great, clinician compared to the other therapists that that even work for me it's more the the listening to the patient and finding out what they want and being okay I don't I don't care it's their body it's their life I'm going to go where they want to go with it I don't need them to do my way I want them to do it their way and and I try to nudge them um, to the outcome they're looking for so
0: now this might be a little woo-woo for some listeners but I know that you have a sense of the energetics behind what's going on in somebody's body. And I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit, what, you're, what you become aware of and what you sense being manifested.
1: Yeah, so I, I, I think sometimes the easiest way to describe it is, you know, you walk into a room and it's the, people aren't in a happy mood, you can tell, or you can tell when people are in a really good mood and the atmosphere is light. So it's it's really the same type of thing that happens. And there's, there's a heaviness that some people carry. And, and also the location of symptoms though, I had a patient that uh, Dan, who's, you, you know, Dan, he's a physical therapy assistant that had worked with me as a massage therapist. And he and I talked a lot about what you just asked, uh, the energy of people. And we had a patient that had lost his son um, from cancer at a very young age. He was like in his early twenties mm. and, and it literally broke the father's heart. And I'm a spine is one of my specialties. So I was working on his back and I was doing mobilizations to his uh, thoracic spine right behind where the heart energy would be. And it was a rock, it did not move. And week after week, everything around it freed up and got more and more mobile. And that spot just did not. And every time we worked on it, Dan and I worked on it um, at different times the second we would start to go in that area, he'd start talking about his son. There was there's just, I can't think of any reason why that wasn't what was really happening. Energetically, he had, he had broken his heart and he had just walled it off to protect from the, the anguish of losing a child. And and it manifests as a physical uh, impairment, but it was clearly an emotional impairment. And there's there's just been lots of times Dan and I've worked with people who've been through significant traumas and um and just carrying the space for him by not being uh (laughs) uh, overreactive or trying to steer them away Uh, we had a gentleman who lost his wife they had been married for 70 years or something he was 96 i think and i was stunned to see him come into the clinic and he came in because he felt good when dan and i were there and he wanted to come in and he spent most of the time crying and grieving the loss of his wife and it was, mm-hmm. you know, obviously touching for us, but it was also because, like, that was okay. I don't need to do physical therapy when yeah. you come to physical therapy. You needed to grieve, so we grieved with him. And it was, uh, it was very powerful, both me and Dan, and and the heart, the mm. the feeling of emotion that came out was immense. And oh. um, and and lives to this day. I mean, that was years ago, and I can still it still resonates in feeling mm. that uh, that connection to Charlie. He was a it was a great moment and, oh. and also surprising. I was not expecting it. And then just his Charlie, I mean, just the, his ability to convey what was going on and his appreciation to have, uh, people that would be okay grieving. And he knew that if he came in, he was, we were going to be okay with that. Yeah. So yeah, it was yeah. Important moment.
0: I I'm sure he's not the only one having been in your office more than once. Yeah. That feels that safety. And I don't know that that's. I, I've probably many of us have been to several different therapists over the years, but there's a huge difference in the f- sense of it, the feeling sense, the energetic sense of it. If somebody who is a technician mm-hmm. and is only looking for symptoms or trying to manipulate the body in order to correct the symptoms and someone who has a larger perspective and is much more tuned into the whole mind body.
1: Yeah.
0: Expression.
1: Yeah, I I definitely learned a lot from Dan and he and I. um, There's a lot of story behind that. So I had a, a practice in Gloversville and I would literally go into one of our treatment rooms and close the door and just meditate for a few minutes uh, to continue to regroup myself mm. so that I was um, energetically there. I was in, as close to being in the moment as possible and not distracted by all the things that you get distracted by. And I always felt that when I was having the biggest impact on people, it was in that space. And 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 of course, in that space, then the intuition about what's going on with people is... Um, it's far greater than that technician, and there were times where I would write down on a piece of paper what the the diagnosis was before I even met the person, and just to walk in and get a sense of something. And I don't know how it really happened <laughs> or what happened, but um, it was pretty amazing how how attuned you can be with something like that. And and it also allowed me to see things a little differently. So there's there's different things that observationally I notice. Um, that I don't. I, I've I've since learned that there's different courses and things that people teach, but I didn't know about those. It was is really truly just through observation and and really being available for that particular moment, what was happening, and then like the little light bulb goes off and you realize, oh, this, and then I just need to do this. And there was one example. Uh, Dan had showed me these manual techniques, and there's a technique where you put your finger on a muscle and you stretch it away and I had accidentally gone to the same side. And the reason is in McKenzie, if you have right-sided pain, you typically go to the painful side. So I just out of instinct did that and the muscle relaxed so much faster. And I, had, I didn't, it wasn't because I knew there was a way of doing that in the past, it was just observational. So I started to experiment and I, I would have patient day after day and I would do the different techniques and shortening the muscle was way more effective than stretching it. So I just, now that's all I do. And I've since learned that that's an actual technique they teach someplace. (laughs) And it's like, oh, (laughs) go figure. (laughs) Uh, So, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So I reinvented the wheel. (laughs)
0: Yeah, well, it's out there in the ethers, right? If you're tuned into it, there you go.
1: Yeah, for sure. One other story about that. So it's energetically, the the first patient Dan treated, um, he does uh, acupressure. And so I had a patient with sciatica and I walked in and Dan had a, a finger on the person's back and the other finger on their calf muscle and he had his eyes closed and he was meditating. And I was <laughs> like, Oh my God, what the hell is this guy doing? And then the patient got off and they were feeling better. I'm like, How's that possible? That's that, that opened me up to the possibility of something else besides uh, you know, the Western view of physical therapy. So I guess Dan's responsible for my insanity. <laughs>
0: well He's certainly a contributor. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
1: I can't blame him for it. Right. (laughs)
0: But I know you two have had many, many hours of long conversations about what it means to be physically embodied on this planet.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's most of what we talk about. (laughs) So, yeah.
0: (laughs) And then, of course, you had a perfect laboratory to see it play out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember going there's a teacher you probably have heard the name her name is Ganga gangaji and um yeah. so i was with her one time and i was describing an intervention with a patient and how um how different it was when i was you know uh the i am or just fully present yeah. and how how much more clearly what was going on became available to me and and it was it's almost an addiction too because it's like so much different do it that way than the other way and i can tell the difference now it's not even hard to tell because i physically feel different and it's much harder like i'm i'm working very hard to make it through a day if i'm if i'm not in that right space and if i have taken the time to uh, be more present and physically mentally emotionally available it's just a much easier day for sure
0: can you talk a little more about that because i think that's fascinating (laughs)
1: yeah so there, you know towards the uh right before we left for denmark i i was definitely having a harder time and part of it was my physical body wasn't doing well so i've had some injuries over the last couple years and i was having a lot of soreness and and not soreness i was having pain (laughs) in my arms and and hands and then i was also one day i just had uh, palpitations in my heart all day long and um and so Typically, if I would go to the doctor, I would kind of go in with an arrogance of my blood work's going to be great. So I don't really care what you do. And I had for the first time, you know, something had edged up and it was like, oh, that's, you know, I've never had something like that. And, and I just didn't feel well. I was, I was really uh, in my mind more than I was anything else in, a, in repeating stories of um, finding fault and problems and things like that. And the day was very challenging to get through. It was uh, probably the hardest as a therapist I've ever had. Um, just making it through a, a, a normal day felt almost impossible. And I've only had a couple times in my career where it's been that way. And then on the reverse of that, if I uh, went in, like there was a, a, a day that I just, I went in, a, I don't remember, it was a few weeks before that. And I just was in this great space, mentally, physically, emotionally, all that. And by the end of the shift, it was just like nothing had happened. It was just an instant in in time. And also just the interaction from the patients and the, the response to my intervention, so much more effective. Sometimes it's a very minor thing. I was just talking to one of my therapists earlier before you and I were talking and something as minor as when somebody is walking and one foot is turned out more and you make a slight modification to bring it in and you can do that by exaggerating it so in the clinic having them walk with their toes in like pigeon toed Mm -hmm. or i call it a crisscross walk where you cross your feet over and really exaggerate it and repeat it and then have them just walk normal and the foot just goes like that and and those moments all really happened to me spontaneously and it was through this like um quiet calm inside and then it starts with an observation of oh there's a patient leaving the clinic they had sciatica they came in with their foot was turned out they left their foot still turned out why they don't have sciatic anymore and then noticing someone came in with foot pain and their foot was turned out why and so i started to notice more and more and then honestly what i did was i experimented in the clinic and i would have everybody walk. it didn't matter the diagnosis except maybe someone with neck pain anything in the lower half i made him walk and i just observed and observed and i would come home and tell my wife that i have no idea what i'm looking at but i know there's something there and and the more present i was and the more um yeah it's calm is what i really feel the more peaceful i am inside the easier it is to figure out what is happening there And it was through that, that I started to, to develop these little weird nuances to gates. And I had a patient that was really struggling to activate his glute muscles and he'd had an injury and stuff like that. And all I had him do was walk with his toes in. And it was literally a, a two day period from a Tuesday to a Thursday. And it just came back. And I remember at the time, like, I have no idea why, but I want you to try this and let's see what happens. And it was after that, I just knew, okay, I'm on to something. And so I started to play around with a whole bunch of different conditions. And, and I, I, that's the, that's the fun, that's the play of, of it. And it starts really with, of course, the individual. So if I'm good inside, then what comes out is going to be good. If I'm not good inside, what comes yeah. out isn't going to be good. So, yeah.
0: Have you ever had someone, when you're in that state of being very present and open, which I think is, t- to me, a component of being creative, it's like okay what do we got yeah. here have you yeah. ever had it uh have uh, the opposite effect that you had expected with someone like with someone have you ever had a situation where someone came in and it was just too overwhelming for them to be with somebody who was actually present and listening to them
1: yeah that was that was more back when it was uh dan and i um we went off the rails for a little while, Nina. So he and I, we were we, we were meditating a lot and uh, offering Tai Chi, Qigong meditation classes. And um, and there were certainly people that when we would get in the space, especially when there was you know it's like two or more come together, it's even more powerful. So my staff was doing it. It was like one of those things we had. I had at one point forty seven employees, and we were collectively as a as a practice. Um, every meeting would start with find your peace. And so we would take the time to, uh, if you're interacting with an insurance company before you call, make sure you're calm and peaceful inside. And I always said, find your peace because it resonated mostly with the staff at the time. Mm. And and I did have people that um, did not like that. They, they felt, um, I think it, a good description would be overwhelmed. It was it was almost like people were too nice to them, so they <laughs> they felt unsettled because we were so receptive to and and also receptive to any personality. So that would, for me at the time was it was totally fine. It's like I understand if it's not the right environment, it's it's totally fine. Um, but I would say that's definitely on the rare side. I think of one gentleman in particular that got borderline confrontational and felt that it was. Um, not why he came to physical therapy he came to physical therapy for that technician clinical type of thing and and i remember thinking to myself that um that it's sad that that that's the thing that's stopping you from from getting better because we're still doing the technical things too we're still giving you exercises to do and doing things that we would do in a technical world um but we're also doing in addition these other things and um I can only think of that guy, but he was really upset. <laughs> so that's probably why it stands out in my mind and really borderline confrontational. I remember just being so puzzled by it that you don't like that we're being so nice. Like I came here for therapy. Like, okay, sorry. <laughs> like, it sounds
0: like you wanted to be in the army, you know, and have a yeah, thrill. Yeah,
1: yeah. Right, right. That's the, the impression of the therapist, especially when I started was, you know, the physical torturers and stuff like that. And and I honestly, early in my career, that is part of why I changed because I had a patient, she was 23 years old and she had what I now know was a torn meniscus and it had flapped over. So she could not straighten her knee all the way. And the doctor insisted that we get her knee straight. And so I would literally put her on a board and these straps to pull the straps down tight to get her knee mm-hmm. to be straight. And she would literally just cry the entire time. And every time she came in, I would get sick to my stomach. I hated it. And it didn't make any sense to me. It was like, this is not working. She came for like, God, it was probably at least a month. And every time, and she would not make any gains. And she's like, how come it's not getting better? And now I know why it's, it wasn't going to get better, but I was a brand new therapist. So I didn't know. So I just kept trying something that wasn't work. Talk about insanity. And, and then I... <laughs> I also had a patient, I had multiple patients that had knee replacement. Mm-hmm. And you learn in physical therapy that if you have someone with an ankle sprain and it's big and swollen, you don't stretch it, you compress it, you elevate it, you ice it, you try to get the swelling out of there. But then we get a knee replacement and it's big and swollen and we're told you have to stretch it. So I'd sit there cranking on people and it's, it's like torture mm-hmm. and it, it yeah. didn't make any, how come I treat an ankle differently than I treat a knee? So honestly, I just stopped. I couldn't do it. So I was one of the therapists, I just, I, I'm not going to stretch you. And I've had times where I told the patient, they're like literally shaking in fear of I'm going to hurt them. And I say, I'm not going to physically touch you. You're going to do everything. And if it doesn't feel good, stop doing it. And I had one patient in particular that I told her, I'll make a deal with you. All you do for the next 48 hours is elevate your leg and do it all day long. That's all I want. Her knee was really swollen. It was a knee replacement. She came back in two days later and 70% improvement in motion. And literally uh-huh. no exercise or activity. It was a swelling. It was too swollen to do anything with. And so when the swelling came down, she could move. And it, was, it was those kind of lessons that taught me that it's not the, the force aggressive approach that is gonna work. I mean, it can, of course, but there's definitely other ways to do it and, and listening to the person and then listening to the body itself. And one of the main jobs I feel we have as therapists is to educate the patient as to what the body is telling them. And so swelling tells me it doesn't like it and you can wish it to be better but it's not it's swelling and as long as it continues to swell and you continue to try it's going to take you longer to get better than than forcing it better it won't work in my opinion so
0: yeah well i I I think that's a really important point that the whole issue of forcing something Mm -hmm. does invoke fear
1: of course and resistance and that resistance is going to make it harder And more traumatic, so then the people are less likely to want to do the exercise, and so then they get into the spiral of it's not working, it's not working because it's going the you're you're forcing it too much, and I I typically say that people do one of two things wrong: they do way too much or way too little, and the way too little is because of the fear, and often even the way too much they they want to force it to get better as fast as they can, and it's that's not listening to the body tell you what to do. So the, you had mentioned in the very beginning or, or somewhere in the earlier parts about the creativity is when you're in that that space and that's when people are at their most creative. And for me, my, my early step into meditation was walking in the woods and it's where I got the most calm and quiet. And when I started to apply that same type of calm and quiet in the clinic is when I definitely got the better results. And it's there that I learned not to force because it's like all the, the Zen stories, you can't. You know, force it to get better. You've got to go with the river. You got to go with it. And so, part of my job is to guide the patient that way through their ups and downs, and um, nudge them a little bit here if they're going too far off the rails of too little, but counterbalancing with not going too much too soon. And it is an art. I don't believe it's a technical thing you can do. It's a feel. And -hmm. there's so many times in the clinic that I'll I'll hear my my therapists that work for me talking about the technical part of it. And I can just feel every part of me says they're, they're too focused on the physical, they're not seeing the mental, I, I talk about it in our staff. meetings. (laughs) This is about the patient. When they come in, it's not about you and your degree. I don't care what your degree is. I don't care what you learn. All those initials behind your name are pointless. The point is to meet the patient where they're at. Mm -hmm. And if they're having a bad day and they don't want to do therapy, then therapy today is listening. That's your therapy. You listen to them. You guide them. You answer their questions. You do not force them to do an exercise. It's complete to me counterproductive to do that. So.
0: That's really brilliant. And I'm, you might see I have somebody visiting yeah. with us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just thinking as you're as you're talking about this. It's I just I'm amazed at how really relevant it is, especially in light of how much. Emphasis is put on uh, weight training and sports training where people are really, you know, no pain, no gain. And just, you know, it is like a military camp where you're, you're brutalizing your body in order to get certain results. And I think that uh, attitude is very pervasive, especially w- with younger people and especially with runners and uh, athletes. I'd love you to talk about that because I think that's very, that demand and that uh, assumption that that's what's required is gotta be bringing a lot of people into the clinic for yeah. that reason.
1: Yeah, so there is there are times I should say that um, the only way through is, is by force. So if you're doing a triathlon, for example, and it's something you love to do, there's gonna come a point in that event where you're gonna be up against something that you're gonna to have to take that go into some discomfort. I don't, there's, there's very few people who can get through such an event without that type of thing. Yeah. But in the training, if you're always in that space of pain and force and things, it is actually counterproductive. And that's, that's not even, that's from physiology. So there's a whole bunch of research and studies about how to time things and, and the sequence of exercises as you build. And to build, you have to progressively load tissue, but you do not have to go to the point of uh, extreme to do that. Mm -hmm. Now, there are, if you have a day of extreme, you should have a day of recovery. So it's the balance that's the most important part. So for example, if you're trying to build muscle, you can overload the muscle and it will cause the muscle to break down. And then the body's natural reaction is to build it to be stronger Mm -hmm. so it can handle the load the next time. But if you're constantly breaking the tissue down, that's overtraining, and then you're going to get an injury. The tendons are going to fail. The muscle is going to fail. The joint's going to fail. So that if you do too little, then what happens is the muscles are not as resilient. They're not as capable of doing things. So one of the most common pervasive myths out there is that rest is good for you. Rest for 24 or 40 hours is fine. Rest for a week, not so much. And the reason is your tendons in particular, they get their, their resilience by using them. So if you avoid using them because they hurt all the time, then you're going to actually make the condition worse. Mm -hmm. So if you have somebody with a tendonitis, for example, you don't want to do the activities, gardening, for example, that could provoke them, but you don't want to not use the muscle. Because if you don't use the muscle at all, the tolerance actually comes down. So then when you go out to garden, you can't do it because your tolerance is too low. So you keep using the muscle, but just a little bit, so your tolerance keeps growing. And then over time, now you're back to doing the gardening activity and the tendons just fine. So, so but to me, that's the art of it. You know, That's exactly the point of the guidance. So the force mentality of no pain, no gain is, is simply the only time no pain, no gain is true, is the delayed onset muscle soreness, which is what happens when you lift muscles. It's not pain while lifting, it's the day after because the body is repairing to build to make you stronger for the day, the third and fourth day. If you have pain during the movement, to me, that's a stop. That's a, it's a very least a yellow light. So I do this example in the clinic if I pull my finger, this is Mackenzie's example, by the way. If you pull your finger back and it hurts, and then you stop and it literally goes right away, it's safe to do that movement one more time. But if I were to pull my finger down and it hurts and I stop and it keeps hurting and it keeps hurting, don't do that movement anymore. And so the pain is not a negative, it's, it is truly the guidance, it's, it's me reading your body. Your body's telling me, hey, pay attention to me. And for some people, as you do repetitions, that pain just goes right away so you know it was safe. For other people, the intensity goes up more and more, it's a hard stop. So if the pain increases while you're doing it, stop. If the pain, so if the pain is you're doing an activity and you have no pain, but then you stop and it immediately surfaces, that also says the activity was too much. Mm. So it's learning that balance. And this is me trying to educate the patient as to how you can tell to do things where you're progressing, but not so much that you overload in and now it's counterproductive. And so the the no pain, no gain is really only for lifting weights and it's for typically bodybuilder type of thing, or somebody who is intentionally trying to build muscle of some kind. It is not rehab for sure. And it's not daily activity. Uh, It's not the most productive way.
0: I remember you having a little bit of frustration about that attitude in, uh, for kids as they're training in high school. And the, their coaches and how the coaches put them through um, a routine that actually is not, it's destructive, it's not productive for them. And and I'd love you to just share a little bit about your experience with that.
1: It's, it's interesting you ask, because I was just talking to one of my therapists, Robert, earlier, and we were talking about sports performance. And I was talking about the gate and things to him, but yeah. one of my, my son played basketball in, in high school. And one of the most frustrating things I've seen in the the area regarding sports training is that these kids who are playing basketball five to six days a week for two or three hours at a time are then going to a gym or to practice, to do a thing called plyometrics. Plyometrics is jumping. It's how you increase your jumping ability. So they've just done three hours of basketball and then they go to the gym and jump. It's insanity. And it's somebody who doesn't understand physiology that's asking them to do that, that's overtraining. And then what will happen, especially with teenagers is they'll develop these tendinitis because the the tendon is not getting enough rest. So they're doing too much. They call it jumper's knee. So it's too much jumping. And, And it's a sure sign of overtraining. And the simple solution is they're playing basketball. It's the season don't have them jump any more than they're doing in practice and games. It's enough. And the other misunderstanding is that for some vigorous activity like that, they're having the kids do it for 30 to 45 minutes. Plyometrics should be 10 to 15 minutes according to just basic science. And so that overtraining leads to this mentality of you got to work hard for this. Well, you have to work hard for it, but you don't have to overtrain it. So there's other ways to work hard. And, and by the way, I've listened to a whole bunch and I've read a ton of stuff on this and how the brain develops. And one of the most powerful tools we have is after you teach a new skill to a child is to literally do nothing. You have them physically sit down, close their eyes, no music, no, uh, no noise at all, no computer screens and literally just sit still. And while they're sitting still, their brain is retracking what they just did. And they've shown in, in studies that you improve their skill development at a faster rate by having the kid literally after the activity stop and do nothing. And yet what will happen is they do an activity and they go right into another activity. Now the brain is confused and it takes longer to develop the skills. And, and we know these things. And they actually, they do these type of things at the Olympics, uh, Olympic training centers, and they do it with elite athletes. But then we get the high school kids who are the most vulnerable to overtraining injuries and we don't do it with them. Ah, let them, their kids, they can do anything. And it's just insanity to me. So I haven't been able to influence that one though. I still have parents that think Robert was complaining that a, a patient left to go to a, to get trained harder. They're two weeks after surgery. They're not ready to train. It's, it's literally, and she's a 13 or 14 years old. It's, it's literally going to risk her, her like next 20 years if she mm. re-injures. It's just crazy. But wow that's the mentality. Got to push, got to push, got to push.
0: Yeah. 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 And of course, that mentality is just across the board in our lives. Got to push yeah. with everything rather than as you're advocating and, and demonstrating that going inward first and listening mm-hmm. is really the key to all of it.
1: Yeah, it, it's there's for me, it's been a, a complete difference in outcomes and, um, and how the interaction with the patient has been, the more I forced the the harder it was for me. And I think the worse outcomes, it was as well.
0: Mm. So. Wow. I'm mm. going to read a little bit more about you and your your background because of the work that you do with runners and uh, treating lower back pain. So Here we go. Through observation and educated experimentation, Matt developed an effective tool for treating back pain, which he calls reciprocal pelvic tilt. That was originally a mistake, (laughs) (laughs) but through months of research and practice, this technique has proven to be a valuable movement to alleviate back pain that can be taught for patients to perform at home. Uh, And you talked about the narrow walking And you also talked about uh, and coined a term called runner's hip that Mm -hmm. is uh, frequently experienced by runners. Yeah. Um, And so talk a little bit about that and what you've noticed in terms of targeting specific movements and the appropriate technique for that.
1: So I want to tell the RPT story because it's a funny one. So this was when I was back in Gloversville and I had this patient whose name was Bernie. And uh, Bernie was a pain in the butt, and he had a pain in the butt. So uh, he was, he's a very, he's a, a great man, but he was, he was uh, rough around the edges, let's say. So um, what I also like to say is that after he was discharged, we used to have free coffee for people. And uh, months later, he would still come in every, you know, five days a week to get his free coffee. <laughs> so what, he would steal my pens and take my coffee. Uh, so <laughs> I, 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 he had like four of my pens in his pocket, I'm like Bernie, you can have one, don't take four. But so he, he had come in and he was having sciatica. So I did my McKenzie techniques with him. And part of McKenzie's technique is a, a movement screen. So we check people's bending forward, bending backwards, and then they're side to side. So, uh, Bernie was atypical in that he had left-sided pain. And when he took his hips to the left, he had pain and we took his hips to the right. He had pain. So that's one of those in McKenzie that's not a, a clear-cut directional preference that, that McKenzie's famous for. So this was out of complete frustration. I was going to just stretch Bernie. And um, so I started to bring his leg up to stretch his glute. And while I was doing that, He was so inflexible that his whole body came up. So I just kind of pinned the one leg down and I pushed the one up and, you know, he was squirming and all that. I'm like, ah, stop it, Bernie. And uh, so then he got off the table and his butt pain was gone. And I remember just, it was, it wasn't because I was, I was literally just trying to stretch the muscles. And so to back up, when you stretch a muscle one time, it doesn't usually make the pain abolish. You can feel some improvement. It feels a little looser, things like that, but there's a lingering effect. It abolished it. So accidentally I abolished his pain and I thought it was muscular, which it clearly wasn't because it wouldn't work that way. So uh, so he went away and he was happy. And then it was probably a few weeks later, I had a woman that came in and she was having a similar problem, similar profile and everything. And I couldn't remember what I had done with Bernie. So I was going around asking my staff, what is it that I did to Bernie that helped him?" Mm-hmm. So eventually we figured it out. And basically it's the painful side. So Bernie had left-sided pain. So I brought his left leg up and then he was inflexible. So I pushed his right leg down. So that makes the pelvis reciprocate. And so that's where the reciprocal pelvic tilt came in. And so then I started to have my staff and at the time I think I had eight or 10 therapists and every patient that came in, I had them check the movement. And if they had the pain on the left side, when the hips went to the left, they were to do the RPT above everything else. And it was incredibly effective. And so I wrote it down, I put it, submitted it to a trade journal and, and it went around the PT community and I got a whole bunch of email, emails from PTs who had tried it. And, um, and what was different about it was that the painful side leg went up and that was something that I couldn't find anybody else was using it that way. And so I coined the term and, and then I always taught my staff and honestly, I was very protective of it because I didn't want it to get out because I've had so many patients who come from other clinics and I just do my RPT on them and it's like, it better. Uh, So, so that's, that was because of McKenzie though, it's the, you find something that helps and you repeat it and then you test it out. So I was really influenced by that. And then when I came to Saratoga, a podiatrist kept me in business. So my gait technique came because I had so many people with foot and uh, lower leg problems. And, and I was trying to figure out why they were walking funny. And there was a consistency there. And then I, I just had people do these weird things to try to uh, correct the gait abnormalities, and I actually had a patient, Nina, that came in with a fracture on his fibula, which is the bone in the uh, outer part of your lower leg, and there's an important muscle that attaches up by your knee. It goes down along the outside of the leg, crosses over the foot to your big toe. It's called the perineal longus, and this podiatrist that was sending me patients always wanted me to work on the perineal longus. He felt it was an important muscle for gait and foot control, so I had uh, this patient who had fractured up there, and he walked with his foot really turned out because if he kept it in normal, when the big toe hit the ground, it contracted the muscle where he had a fracture. So it hurt. So he turned his toe out to avoid that. So as he was healing up, I one day for 30 minutes videotaped him. I had my uh, receptionist videotape him. And I tried all these movements, all the things I could find in the research on how to get this muscle better. And then my own little creations. And that's where the gait actually was confirmed because anytime I did, what I called weird walking, um, he would improve. And so that's where the gait stuff started. So all that story comes into my runner's hip because I had a patient that um, she was having, she was diagnosed with IT band syndrome. So there's a big muscle in the outer part of your thigh. And so she was complaining of pain and she liked manual therapy and she liked deep tissue work. So there's a muscle right up by the top of the pelvis called your tensor fasciae and that's the, the muscle belly and then the tendon is the IT band. So the muscle is the tensor fasciae and the tendon is the um, iliotibial band. So I was working on that tensor fasciae muscle and I was trying to push my thumbs into the muscle and do it deep. And I wasn't able to do it sh- strongly enough. So I put my fingers on the pelvic rim, the, the crest of her pelvic bone. And I gripped my fingers down to drive my thumbs in. And she's like, that's it. That feels better. And so what I didn't realize, it wasn't the thumbs, it was the finger on the pelvis that was helping. There's a muscle up there called your iliacus, and then your external oblique abdominal comes in there. And so then I had uh, this therapist at the time working for me and Dan, and I had every one of them, uh, every patient that came in with hip pelvis to go after the iliacus as an experiment. And then I started to notice that gait. So the runner's hip is a combination of that weird external rotation of the hip to turn away and it comes with a weakness in the glute muscles and that tension in the iliacus uh, iliacus external oblique abdominal muscle sometimes the psoas sometimes glute muscles but always those two muscles mm. and if they have that then I had a runner this all she was a runner that's how it started and then I had a triathlete who would come in and she was struggling with running she could swim and bike fine but when she was doing uh, an exercise, she would shift away because she couldn't stabilize with her glute muscles. And she always had that tension in there. So I started to piece that all together. So the runner's hip, which by the way, my running cohort colleagues are angry with me for coming up with another name for something. (laughs) Like we have (laughs) too too many damn names here. So uh, so I was really uh, put on the spot about that one. And my main mentor, he harassed me for a few weeks. I can't believe you did that. And like, I'm not going to call it that. And if you call it that, I'm going to put a comment on. We don't call it that, like he was really funny about it. So, but it it just, it was through the observation and it came up with, then I started to, in conjunction with Dan giving me some guidance on manual techniques, come up with, if someone comes in with these symptoms, a gait, weakness, a pain, I know this is what it is. And I know these are the, the beginning foundational exercises they need to be able to do in order to get the momentum going. And oftentimes it's the, it's really the simple ones. Of course it is, you know, like people are doing all these complex movements and what they really need to do is just to be able to stand on one foot with their hips, not tilting, <laughs> something very minor like that. And, and that, or getting that toe to turn in a little bit when they walk makes more of a difference than, you know, doing 20 different exercises to strengthen something. So, yeah,
0: it makes a and an interesting point about what the body really needs when we think it's, it's, uh, it should be very complicated. Mm-hmm. And yet, maybe not.
1: Mackenzie is simple. So the Mackenzie's approach was, uh, in fact, when I first started the, the, the main way of distinguishing yourself as a Mackenzie therapist was how few visits, could you get to the conclusion to get somebody better. And so Questions. So um, it's more and more clear what the picture is, and then through the observation of how somebody's moving, to guide them to the one or two movements that they need. So that was really the key, and um, it's the simplicity. The, the more simple it was. So Mackenzie's instructions are: it's basically posture and repeat this movement, and that's the end of the conversation. And then it's reinforced. And then you every time someone comes in, you reevaluate their movement because today's a new day. So you can't assume because last week, this helped that today it's going to help. So every day, so you educate the patient, check your movement every day. And if you get familiar with how you move, you'll find the stretch. So you've probably heard me say it's not the combination of stretches. It's usually one or two things that is really going to give the big improvement that you're looking for. Once you're over the hump and you're feeling good, then the general 20 stretches is great, but in the acute stage, What's the one that gives me the most relief and what's the one that helps me move the best. So if my movement is limited, I want to move better. I do one stretch. It helps me move better. Focus on that one. Do that one 10 times a day. Don't worry about your other ones for a little while, get the movement back and then resume the other ones.
0: yeah. Mm. yeah. What would you recommend people do when they're looking for a physical therapist how, how to evaluate them before i mean aside from referrals and recommendations and so forth and yeah. you do your research but really how do you how do you pick somebody who is going to really help
1: i have i've been asked that question through the years a ton and i'm honestly i'm always i always avoid answering the question (laughs) but (laughs) um (laughs) the general the general rule like one of the things dan uh the massage man um he's a body worker so using the phrase body worker is an example of a, a way to distinguish one from the other so a massage therapist versus a body worker um that's a different approach to the system so i don't talk a lot about my mckenzie training anymore and part of it is is because McKenzie therapists, um, there's two different camps. There's the purists who are just like McKenzie and they do just like McKenzie, and then they're like me, who my teacher was a guy named David Poulter, and he's the one that said the patients have all the answers. Mm. So for me, that's the like a distinguishing characteristic. So I don't want to be lumped into this group, even though I have the, the training was exactly what led me to be different than I am, but I'm not. I'm a purist with my assessment. I do exactly like Mackenzie does, but the treatment is different. Mm-hmm. It's more the art than the the technician. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I would look for is somebody who is doing the art of therapy. And if they have anything on a website or page that's saying something about the art of therapy or they're looking at the whole body, um, i don't I don't honestly care what a doctor tells me it is, and I don't care. I certainly don't care what the insurance tells me. And so i it's that kind of um, I'm there for the patient. I'm not there for me. I'm not there for my credentials and all those kind of things. And if if you find the person that's really available for you that way, I just feel like it, that's the, to me, that's the point. <laughs> that was why I did this thing in the first place was to to be able to help and uh, share what I've learned. So I don't, I'm, I'm trying to be accessible for the patient and where they're at. And um, I, it's, it's a popular tor- term right now to do a whole body assessment. And there's very few practitioners who really do that. And so to me, the whole body is not just the physical body, it's the mental, the spiritual, the emotional, mm-hmm. it's the whole body. And I do know there are people out there for sure doing that, but um, I don't, there's not a ton of them out there. A lot of them, whole body means they'll evaluate your foot and ankle when you come in with a hip problem, <laughs> which is, is still it's it's a bigger better than just a value, right <laughs> but it doesn't account for all the things we talked about the the whole to me is the whole it's not part of the whole <laughs> so i really i i feel like there's so many times i can think of that i'm so much more interested in the the other stuff not the physical stuff the physical stuff it's necessary that's what got them in the doors and i'm going to do my best to help but it's not why they're there they came for a different reason I have a, there's an older patient that just kept coming and, and part of it was, we were her, her outlet and, and she got treated well, is one of those, like we treated her so well. We bent over backwards to do anything for her. And she really, really appreciated it. She did not want to leave. She would have stayed forever. The pandemic is actually what stopped her from coming. Um, And I, I met her, I did a talk at a, a workshop at a senior center and that's where we met and um, her, her physical results weren't good. She had major cardiac problems, and um, it, it would is if she has not passed, it's going to be what likely causes her to pass because it was that bad. And um, so she is very limited in what she could do. And yet she came in every week, two, three times a week, faithfully, religiously, and she loved uh, she loved to be able to talk about, her aches and pains, but she also would stay after just to listen and observe people being happy because where she was living, people were <laughs> happy. So oh, wow. she she wanted to, yeah, be happy <laughs> or be around <laughs> happiness, I guess. So, yeah,
0: that's important.
1: It's huge, massive. Yeah.
0: So before we go, how can people find you these days? Aside from going to Denmark and
1: Denmark, you yes. Down. yes, I'm in Aarhus, Denmark right now, um, so right now, um, I'm going to be in Denmark uh, for the next little bit. My wife and I are actually tre- heading to Greece in September, October. So I won't be coming back to the States until then. But the easiest way, like website-wise, is just go PT, which is my name with pt at the end.com. And you there's a little place to email me there. Um, I do have a Facebook page also. And... Um, my email is just goodemotept at gmail.com. So people can just email me that way too. Um, I don't have a phone over here, so I don't have a phone number or I'd give that out. So, uh, but generally, like I'm the, the physio fit part is right now, um, mainly I'm here to help my son and get him transitioned. But I, as recently as yesterday, I saw a gentleman at the gym and he had a, a ankle brace and I can't help myself. So I asked him, you know, I don't speak Danish or anything. And uh, so he'd sprained his ankle and he said, do you have any recommendations? So I'm giving him advice and the the head trainer at the gym, I work out at his shoulder is bothering So I'm doing (laughs) so, so I'm, I'm available is what I'm saying. It's hard for me not to, uh, but I'm not uh, in, in the States right now. So you can definitely email me or get through me on a website and I'm happy to help wherever I can. So,
0: Do you have any of your articles or blog posts on your website?
1: I I just started doing blogs, believe it or not, Um, I have three up right now. And I plan to just keep putting them up week after week. Um, And there's not many topics that I haven't covered. So if somebody had a question about a particular topic, I usually have a blog ready. I do have a YouTube page also um, where I have like the basics for back and neck. Um, My plan was to have the basics for everything, but right now it's back and neck. And so, if you, I, my most popular video, my nephew edited a video, and he put it on YouTube just for us to have a conversation about, and it has like 130,000 hits on it or something like. That. Oh my gosh, so, that's great! Yeah. And then that would yeah. be
0: just searching your name on YouTube. My name, yeah, Matthew Goodemo. yeah, yep, yeah.
1: yeah, good. Any of those vehicles, and I, I, yeah, I'm happy to help anyone who has a question or something. So, thank you. Yeah.
0: Okay, well, that was really delightful and informative and i really appreciate you being on the call with me
1: thank you for asking me nina it was fun i like this kind of thing so <laughs> and yeah. thank
0: you everyone who is watching or listening and we appreciate your being here and hope to see you on the next call so bye for now